0: Welcome to the Saving Capitalism podcast. Hey. All right, Mikey, dude, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, back at it. Thanks for having Seriously. me. Seriously, <laughs> you know, I've uh, you are hands down one of my favorite people. And I absolutely love the way that you think and the way that you bring value to other people, especially when we're talking about, you know, finance, economics, because I think primarily your background is so different from most people that would be, you know, most people don't go like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go pro skater to, uh, you know, talk about economics and capital allocation. Right. Right? (laughs) Right. So, uh, that's, you know, not, not your traditional way. And I think that that actually allows you though, to see the world in a very, uh, relatable manner. So when you, when you explain things and when you're talking uh, to people, it's relatable for the masses, right? right? Uh, A lot of people, you see this in all industries but they use lingo right that it's like they change let's say so now all of a sudden it's really complex and complicated when it's like if you just use normal words it's actually not correct uh but how was that that learning curve for you when trying to understand how this side of the world the economic side of the world money side of the world works yeah it's a really good question so
1: where i'm going to add to what you just said after i say this because it was actually really valuable i had a mentor yeah. And he came into my life when I was 19. So I was a kid, didn't go to college. I was a skateboarder. So I didn't really have a big understanding of, I would say the world in general. Yeah, And I was a skater. Like, yeah. you know, I wasn't like yeah. the college kid. And so when I would ask him things that applied to maybe the stock market or even mm-hmm. more simple terms like budgeting and credit, uh, I asked him to explain it to me in a way that I would understand. Like, pretend you're talking to a kid. Yeah. and. All of a sudden he started speaking and it made sense, Yeah. right? And so I think me learning these concepts that began with somebody just saying them in kind of layman's terms, I went, oh my gosh, this isn't as complicated as everyone yes. makes it out to be. They just almost learn it and then use big words to yes. make people feel like they can't get involved yep. so that you can then pay them for their service. That's what it yep. felt like, right? hundred yeah. percent. And so I, I think just from that background, I try to articulate it in a way that that is easy for me to understand. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get people going, I just learned more on TikTok in 45 seconds yes. than I did in my finance class over the last year.
0: Yeah, 100%. And so I think it's just how you communicate it. Well, it's so funny too, because even in school, it's like the first, the first whole sections of everything is learn the vocabulary. Right. And you're like, I have to learn a new language to understand basic financial or economic principles. Right. And it, it's that, First of all, I think it doesn't make it relatable. It also makes it scary right. and boring. Right. Like, I mean, people think about like, you know, capital money economics. you got the classic, you know, Ferris Bueller, right. right? Bueller, Bueller, anyone teaching economics. And for me, it's strange because I'm like, economics is the most fascinating thing right. because we all are doing it. Everyone's participating in it. And, and, right. and, it, and it, it touches every single person's life from the second they wake up, you know, to go down. And I think most people actually think that it's fascinating. And you can see even online where people, they want to know about money. They're interested in politics, Mm -hmm. right? So all the fringe stuff, I feel like they're interested in, but the heart of it, it's, oh, well that now we assume is boring because of I think how it's explained and lingo used. sure. That's very like off-putting for most people. For sure. And I think
1: too, like, like everything I learned by and large was through experience. It was just like yeah. day-to-day experience. Yeah. Most people have very similar experiences to what we've gone through. Yes. Uh, but then you have like a select few that went down a different path, right? Whether it was like, I went to college, then I got my master's, now I'm a professor in economic, And the way yeah. they learned was different than us. Yes. And so it just doesn't seem like their message lands. It's like yes. I, everything you're saying makes no sense. Yeah. Right. But at, but at the end of the day, what we all know is that things cost more today than they did six months ago. Yes. Right. So I think people are fascinated and wondering why. Why, why am I paying more? Why? And so if you could just explain it in a simple term, I think people are, are fascinated. Something we just ro- watched right now was Pace, Pace yep. uh, speak about creative financing. Yep. Pace does such a good, good job articulating so his good. message in a very simple form. Right. So good. It was actually something that, like, you know, when you start reading books, I read this book. Uh, as an influence from uh Cialdini. Okay. Right. I started getting really into this whole idea of talking in a way people understand. Right. This yes. is after me learning about what I learned. When I moved into having to raise money, I wanted to learn how to uh h- how to ultimately get as many people as possible to say yes. So I started yeah. reading all these like psychology books. One book I read basically mapped out the 2016 election. Right. Mm-hmm. And he showed the difference, not on the political side, just on the messaging between Trump and Clinton. Yeah. Right? And what he talked about was the level of grade in which they speak. Where Trump, I thought, I think they said Trump spoke in like a first grade level and Hillary spoke in a sixth grade level. Yeah. And they were saying sixth grade is way too advanced advanced. for you to articulate your message. You actually want it closer to third or second. That was a game changer for me. I was like, wait a minute. The more simple you make it, yep. the more people say yes. And so I just try to get better at that. But the challenge is as you learn more, you fall victim of want,
0: you yes. you understand more complex ideas. And you want to explain it. Like a hundred percent. When I because yes. like, and that's how I feel I get excited right. and it's like, well, it's because of this. It's because of this, right? And you're like, hold on, you're moving too far too fast. Right. right. So then it's lost. Right.
1: Yeah, so it's it's fun because then it becomes a game. Yes, right. You're like, okay, I'm speaking, I'm looking at the person next to me, and they they have the lost face. Yep, and they're bored. Crap, scale back. <laughs> yes, know? it's fun.
0: It is fun, and it's cool when you see that light bulb. Right. On. like once again, there's a reason why people listen to this podcast. They're trying to understand right. how the world works, how it affects them, and how they can better perform within it, right? At the end of the day, that's probably the vast majority of everyone's time spent. It doesn't matter where you're at. You want to be better. You want to do better. You want to increase your position. You want to understand how, right? right? And when you have communicators that are really good at it, where I think, too, honestly, probably prior to social media, the, the great speakers of, like, economics and things, I think of, like, Ronald Reagan, right? Right. Who used jokes right. and very simple things right. to get those points across? Correct. Even like Clinton right. with his, you know, accent yeah. and his almost, you know, not I don't want to say dumbed down, but it's just that that communicating yeah. style where people goes, thank you, right. you're talking to me, you're not a professor, right. right? And this this barrier of entry on social media. I really feel has come down, right? where people go towards different avenues like that right. to understand things that they didn't have. I mean, all, we all know that it had to go through school and open up an economics book, right? right. Holy cow, that is just mind numbing. Right. And it, it's interesting to me, you're like, you're talking about billions and trillions of dollars in companies like Nike and Apple, and you can make that boring. right? Like, right. come on, right. this is amazing that's right. stuff. That's right. And you know, every songwriter or rapper that's singing about how they're making money, everybody loves and wants to listen. So it's like it's already there. That's right. We all want to know. That's right. But you just gotta bring it down to a level. And you came, you know, as a pro skater, mm-hmm. you started to say, All right, I gotta change things. I gotta start to invest. Right. You had a mentor when you started to look at investing and entrepreneurship, was that kind of a hard world for you to break into? That's a good question.
1: Uh, the investing part was harder than the entrepreneur part. Yes. Like, you know, what what I was always fascinated with at with investing was the idea of your money making money. But that's all I needed. I was like, yes. wait a minute, that's a real thing? And once mm. I knew it was a real thing, I started by having somebody help me basically pick investments or pick a strategy. So I went through the, the path of get guidance, and learn in real time with them and then eventually move over onto my own. That path took longer for me. The entrepreneur path, uh, there were concepts about it that were more natural or more innate. The hard part about entrepreneurship was the team building. That that was the part that took me a long time because I came from a world of almost like hustle your way to success. It was like, I wanted to be a pro skateboarder. What does that mean? Oh, I got to figure out how to get sponsors to give me free product. Yeah. And then I've got to figure out how to get photographers to shoot me and then put my photo in the magazines. Yeah. And then I got to figure out how to get my own signature line, right? It was very much me driven. And I didn't have to rely on other people to do any other task in the system. It was just, I perform, I make money. Yes. When I when I moved into business, when I started my first business, uh, I didn't realize how bad I was at, at working with people. or Or maybe a better way to say it is, my example of leadership was wrong. Right. Like I grew up thinking the boss was like a very authoritative figure. Yeah. And he tells you what to do and you do it. And it, it yep. was very abrasive. That's not real leadership. No. But that's just what I thought it yeah. was until I got in and nobody wanted to work with me. Yeah. And I was like baffled by that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that one that was it that was a an entrepreneurship was an easier uh learning curve. Learning curve in real time.
0: Yes, investing a lot of quick inputs that you can see in real time. Yeah, but
1: investments—I mean, truly, good investments take a long Long time. time. Yes, they do. And so, you know, my biggest learning curve was probably from 2000, let's call it eight to 2013. Like the recession and then what came from that was a huge learning curve. That was five years to learn a couple things. Yes, so it just takes longer on that side, at least for the real time experience. Like
0: it's funny because when people are like, you know. I love listening to you talk about macroeconomics and these things that are changing. Like, how did you learn? And I was like, I was consulting with 300 companies that were failing during the financial crisis, and I spent years trying to figure out why. Right. Yep. Like, literally, it was just like, I don't understand what's happening. Yeah. And it was, when you look at this stuff, this, this, some of these bigger, it's almost like not wisdom, but reaching out and seeing how the larger play at work, right. instead of so down in the micro, where entrepreneurship is micro. Right. It right. is day-to-day That's adjustments. Right. And the things that really move the needle on investment is a combination of micro action, as you know, and larger though, time timeframes. Right. I even had a lot of problems at first explaining uh, this to investors because, right. To me, it was second nature. I I couldn't figure, I was so into my asset class and your asset class storage. I was so into it. I feel like I knew everything about it. I'd done everything, right? That it was the second language to me. And I said so many assumptions. Like, oh, well, of course we know this. Of course we know this is how assets work, right? You have to front load all this work and energy and we have a value add system. And then when it was playing out, I realized I did a horrible job of, first of all, setting expectations and explaining things to investors because I right. did a bad job communicating, right? And this is you know damaging obvious for obvious reasons in communication, which any bad communication is family, right? Right, uh, right. It's you know, marriage for sure, y- exactly. Marriage for sure. And you you look at those challenges and it, these lessons, and it can be very very difficult to. I mean, first of all, you feel like you don't know anything, right. and then trying to communicate that to others. How did you get over think that gap where you're like I'm? I didn't go to Hartford, right? Yeah, I, 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 right. I don't. I don't even know if I'm going to communicate this right. Yeah. But then, two, how do I talk about complex issues and feel comfortable doing it? Yeah, that's such a good question. That was an insecurity of mine, actually. Um, you know, when
1: so I went from skateboarding, and then the first business I started was in the beer industry. Yeah, and beer felt a little bit like you could do whatever you wanted. It, it was very different than the world that we play in now. Where I, I felt comfortable there. I, I don't know, I felt like I could dress the way that I normally dress, I could talk the way I normally yeah. talk. It wasn't until we started Commune, which like mm-hmm. uh, Cedar Creek is yep. a private equity firm, uh, when I started going into meetings with like suits yeah. and people that went to you know Ivy League schools and the insecurity came out. Like, you know, there was one meeting, uh, this is a good one. One of the first meetings I walked into was with uh, a developer that we wanted to do a deal with. And two of my partners are in there, we have an analyst and we have like three of their principals and I walk in like two minutes late and I'm wearing a hoodie, probably white Converse, right? And I sit down and right when I sit down, the principal of of the other firm goes, are you the assistant? And there was something about that I was like, it was so like, da- it just yes. hurt, right? Yes. And I was like, no, Mikey Taylor, right? Yeah. And I don't say anything. I just, you know, swallowed it. We keep going on the meeting. And then all of a sudden I had the opportunity where it, it was time for me to basically pitch, right? Yes. And I remember he- like almost hearing this feeling like, you know, I would probably say, I wouldn't probably, I would say it was like from God, he yeah. told me this. Yeah. Maybe people would say this is just like an intuition, yeah. but I felt this like almost word, just be yourself. Yes. Do you? Right, and I remember going, you know, what this guy already played me, like whatever. Yep. And I basically just told him the vision of what we're doing. And by the end of it, the whole entire, the whole entire, every single person in that meeting staring at me, like I, I I'm owning the room, yeah. right? And I left there, and as I was leaving, one of the one of the guys from the other team was like, that was the most unique moment I have ever seen. I didn't think anything from you. I recognized that you were a little bit different, but by the end I was like totally captivated. Yeah. And it was such a like encouraging moment for me to learn that being different is an advantage. Yes. You just, you have to take it. If you look at being different as the weakness, you're not gonna go anywhere. Yeah. And, and then that took time for me to perfect. It, it yeah. took time for me to get comfortable walking in a room and being really comfortable with who I was. Maybe a year, two years of that. I just started
0: making steps from that kind of instance. You know, I and I think this is one of the things that I love about you because everybody feels this way, right? So everybody looks at finance, entrepreneurship, all this, and they see the movies, they see the suits, they see the, and it's, I'm not that guy, right? right? And, you know, I grew up uh, ADHD, dyslexic. Right. I left school when I was 15, right? All I wanted to be was a... a pro uh skier so i just wanted to play in the park and uh that that was like my vision of okay well i'm dumb so this is what i'm going to do right right? and uh, i ended up going to college when i was 15 and it like flipped this script or this narrative but it always stuck with me Mm -hmm. like when i went into a room it was always like everybody else is smarter than me Right, right 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 and i you know when you look at that i think that is one of the biggest barriers of entry we have to finance because we're not accustomed to it. Meaning that you're not brought into this language or this world of economics and finance from an early age. In fact, it's totally the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's don't talk about money. You don't ask how much people make, you don't talk about money. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into a world of money. Right. And it's like a shock, Right. right? I don't understand how this works. Mm. I don't get why the world is doing what it's doing. And frankly, you know, the tail's wagging the dog meaning the economy's actually driving everything from social issues to uh politics no right. president's ever survived a recession right right and right. it's like it, it's this massive all-encompassing thing that everyone doesn't know how to talk about right and I think that's very dangerous
1: yeah I I agree I mean you you've heard people basically break down the idea of school and mm-hmm. and what school is intended to do and yes you know it, it, the first time I heard that I think it was a What's Robert Kiyosaki's wife's name or ex-wife, Kim maybe? Uh, Kim, yes. I heard her, I, I watched a video of her. This is, had to have been eight, nine years ago. She's talking about the school system and what school teaches you to do, right? Yeah. Basically, only get the right answer. You're punished if you say something wrong. You're not here to be creative in your ideas. And seriously, I'm listening to her say that. I'm going, oh my gosh, that was my experience. And the life I live now is the exact opposite, opposite. right? Yes. And so, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, the system is... Has been built for that. It, it's yeah. built so that you do not succeed on your own, and you don't have the tools to go do. It's it's almost built to populate people into you know the growing economy.
0: Um, you and we're feeling that. Yeah, we're feeling you know? it. And I think, you know, this idea, this um, really what comes down to, you know, I I I think, and we talked about right before this when we were getting on, this idea of protectionism in the United States and how the barriers have been lifted. Um, as a kid growing up in Idaho, I didn't really see wealth, Mm. right? So I remember that my dad was an insurance salesman and he ended up starting his own brokerage firm and my dad bought me a new bike to go on a trip with the Boy Scouts, right? And I was, at the time, I was like 16. It was a mountain bike, right? And I was teased because I was the rich kid because I had a new bike. right? And uh, that was a world that was very foreign to me. As with most of America, they didn't grow up in... You know, they didn't grow up in fancy places where they saw Bugattis or, you know, they, they, they were absent from that world. Right. And they don't feel in tune to that world right. of wealth. And in society, there's that social barrier. But then there's also other barriers mm-hmm. like regulatory barriers. Mm-hmm. And we've really over the years created these barriers with not only the government, but institutions and trying, which makes sense. If you're a business, you want to stop competition. Right, That's your goal, right? right? But the government shouldn't be assisting people in that, obviously. Right. Um, but I really feel like, and I think a lot of people feel like, we are living in a protectionism system right now. right? Where it's certain people get a play, right? And others are being kept out. We have very strict laws on what people can even talk about to non-accredited investors. right. And I think that has a wide-ranging effect on not just the actual split, but also the psychology of individuals in the two camps.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I I think it's both and probably some other factors, but I'll I'll talk on the, the... regulation part or or government involvement just because it's something that we're experiencing right now with the city. Right. Our city, I'm a council member for (laughs) (laughs) I'm a council member of the the city of Thousand Oaks. And one of the big pain points for us, like many cities throughout the nation, is housing prices. Right. So there's, you know, a big push towards affordable housing. And what I what I hear and see on social media a lot is capitalism is broken. Right. And you know I, I think the frustrating part at least I'm gonna vent a little bit. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's something going on that feels unfair, there's a disparity or something's too expensive, it seems like everybody goes, that's capitalism, it's broken, it's late stage, move it on over, right? Instead of saying, why are we here and what can we do to fix it, right? And so, you know, I live in the state of California and California is very, very difficult to build. Yes. And on top of, of that challenge, The state keeps adding new taxes onto things and they make it more and more expensive to do business here, which drives a lot of dollars out, which really means competition goes away and the real need, which is supply isn't happening. So, you know, we, we, we get frustrated with the price, but the real solution to that really is supply, right? Then you look at like government involvement on something like inflation, right? I think Mm -hmm. this one's really interesting. You go through a 2020 scenario. Right. And the Fed, you know, pumps out an ungodly amount of money. And a big part of their response is we're combating deflation. Yes. Right. Yeah. But when you think about it, that's not allowing the market to be the market. That's no longer capitalism. That's no longer a free market because what that means is price of things should go down. Yes. And the government is now printing around that. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's an interesting kind of lever as well. And now we move into this pain point that we're in now where. Inflation was basically, you know, triple taxing everybody. Yep. And now you watch the Fed go. We've got to kill demand. And now we're watching what that happens to the supply issue with housing. Now yes. it's harder to to build. You know, borrowing has become more tough. You know, yeah. the debt market has pulled back, and all developers these are that, just shutting down. Right. So it's it's interesting. And then another one is just fresh because of California. Uh, we did a video on the, uh, 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 what's it called, the California Dream Dream for All uh act or program mm-hmm. basically they funded all of this money i think it was like 330 million maybe uh my numbers could be off on this one but basically the concept was they were going to help people with down payments yeah right so if you're a first-time home buyer they're going to give you your 20 percent down payment right so you're zero yeah. in on the deal yeah and then when you sell it you have to pay back the 20 percent you borrowed yeah. then they take I, I, like a carried interest, you pay them like twenty percent of your gains yeah. or something like yeah. that, right? Where like my breakdown of it was, I like that one. The government is treating this like how we would. Yes, uh, but the challenge is they just brought a whole new buyer pool into the market, yeah. which increases demand, which drives prices up. So yep.
0: there definitely comes a point where we're not playing the same game yeah. anymore. No, you know. It, well, look at I mean, two thousand eight. Effectively, in the nineties the government came out and the Clinton administration had a home for everyone, right? right? They wanted every person in America to own a home. So they got the four biggest banks in the United States and the world together in a room. And literally the bank said, you guys can't come out of this room until you figure out a product that will allow us to put everyone in a home. Right. Well, they did. Yeah,
1: and what happened because of that? What happened? You had
0: people that shouldn't have been buying homes end up buying it because the system stopped focusing on the fundamentals. It stopped focusing on capital and payback periods and everything with a just a, a goal where it was like just put people in a home, everybody else look away. Right. And we saw what that did both on um, you know, supply side right. and driving up demand. And then also it as lots of times that, that happens, ran wild right. with people doing horrible things and cutting corners and scams and that's what happens when you allow systems like that to go it had nothing to do with what the reality was right it was what they wanted the end goal to be right and in economics it has to do with the reality do you want to buy something or not right. the people that can sell something that people want survive the people that can't die right when you screw that up that has huge complications right and We've seen so much of this, where it's not only protectionism, but it's picking and choosing. Yeah.
1: yeah, And in a lot of cases too, it's like they they, they try to solve a a problem and then they end up creating a bigger one than existed before, right? You see this with with school, Mm -hmm. right? Where they don't let basically lenders default on the borrower, which basically goes, Oh my gosh! I'm going to fund everyone, yes. and now you have colleges and the price of college ramping up so astronomical. Exactly. So you have that. You have something. Uh, you know, I talk about this a lot, uh, just because of the the local politics thing. Uh, we have a crazy increase of homelessness in yeah. California. Crazy, crazy. Right? Huge Shocking. part of that is mental illness. Yes. And so when you look at you know the challenge that they had in the early '80s or leading up to the early the '80s, they spend the most
0: money per capita than right. anywhere in the
1: world right. on homeless. Right. So check. Well, that's another story, but. You know you have this this concern, and it definitely was happening. I think it was just happening at a small scale, was people were being put into these mental institutions that shouldn't have been there, right. Yes, because, you know, a family member or a loved one had the ability to force action, right. Yes. So then they go, that's not right. We need to remove mental institutions, and we need to put all the power back to the individual, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, that makes sense. yep. Now, the challenge and where we land today is mental illness does not come on to a human until their brain stops developing. So, this is 18 to 25 is when it kicks in. Yeah. And a problem or a part of the mental illness is you can't see that something's wrong. So, yes. you have an adult person with a mental illness that has an inability to see that they have a mental illness and they're the only ones that can get them help. Yep. Now we have the problem today. Yep. So, it's, 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 it's not good. No, it's, it's not, not good. good, you know? And and then then you talk about, you know, how people make money in the system. And look, there's a lot of money to be made addressing the homelessness problem. A lot. Exactly. So it's like you asked yourself, like, how many people really want to work themselves out of a job? Yeah. Like if we solve this
0: problem, now this is a lot of people that are no longer earning. Institution. Right. Like it's big business. Right. It's big business. And it's a big business that has zero correlation to outcome. Right. The more money they've spent, the worse the problem has gotten. Yeah, yeah, so it's a challenge. It,
1: it it's a there's a there's a fine balance. And, and and this is something I want to get your your opinion on because I think this is interesting. Uh I'm I don't share like the the libertarian view on the market being completely free and yep. no regulation. I don't either. Uh because I think in a competitive uh anything, you have to know the rules that you're playing. Yes. But there's a balance there between is. too much regulation and not enough. Mm-hmm. So how do you do it? Where do you find that line and and what is the best solution so that we don't see prices run out yeah. to where you're seeing this, you know, crazy wealth disparity? Yeah.
0: But it's not a like
1: what we're experiencing in crypto where everybody yeah, just lost all their money all. like that, yeah. right?
0: And it's it's interesting because even if you went the other way, th- so the government theoretically should not allow Mass concentration, like monopolies, right? right? Things like that, and monopolies come from pr- protectionism. Right? They're they're allowed to get that big and to do those things, right? And right now in the United States, um, our regulation environment per the United States affects uh, the average firm in the economy. So when we say firms, they're just talking about businesses. But the average firm in the United States that's under a that a hundred employees uh, or less pays a twenty percent higher amount for regulation than the biggest firms do right so right that is first of all vastly uncompetitive then you get into the fact what per the government's own data every dollar of new regulation is directly coincided with a failure of a small business right and the compliance Four businesses is treated, you're a corporation all the way down, right? So what they what the regulation has done is it has created a way to be unco- uh, to be uncompetitive because the biggest firms now can compete because they have lower costs, they have lower everything, they can deal with regulations, the other ones can't. They're getting shut down because of regulations, right. and then the big ones are buying them up and, and folding them in. Right. So this regulation problem is a really big problem. And it's, you're, you're right. I do not believe, I'm not a libertarian that says it's a free for all. Okay. But the rules by which we play right. need to first of all be simple. Right. The complexity drives the cost. Right. Last year, we spent um, $700,000 on attorneys and were no lawsuits. That was just to close deals. Yeah. And, when you look at what we have to spend to get our taxes done, and you've probably seen the funny meme where it's like, all right, so let me get this straight. You know exactly how much I need to pay, being the government, you being the government. I don't, I have to pay these people tens of thousands to figure it out, and if I'm wrong, I'll go to jail. But you won't tell me how much I need to pay. Right? Like, It's kind of a joke, yeah. right? Um, and so the complexity that has happened over the last 30 years, Right in the financialization of assets on everything else adversely affects uh, competition. It concentrates wealth. And I believe that a concentration of power, both in government, everything else is bad. I also obviously believe that in the economy because a a, a capitalist economy doesn't allow for that. Meaning that there shouldn't be such disparities in abilities to compete, Right. right? You should have a playing field that's even. We do not have a playing field that's even due to stacking of regulations. Right. Regulations has outpaced population by a thousand percent. Right. It's I mean, such it's a good astronomical.
1: astronomical. It's such a good point. You kind of loosely touched on it. When you add all of this regulation, the big players can can afford it. Yep. It's the small ones they that can't. struggle. Right. So you 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 kind of take away the beauty of business in America, yes. right? It's like, and even thinking about like the experience, we, my wife and I went to Central Coast about a month ago and we were driving down, we pulled off to go to this coffee shop and I saw a Starbucks, mm-hmm. right? I'm Like, oh, Starbucks. Yep. And then as you know, we were pulling up, there was like this kind of mom and pop style coffee shop, like three uh, like streets before, yep. right? And I drove by it, my wife said, let's go there. I'm like, oh, the salted caramel cream cold brew, though, right? Yeah. And she's like, no, let's go there. I'm like, okay. And I I pulled in, we went to the mom and pop shop shop. It was such a cool experience. We sit, we sit, order our food. The the uh cashier is asking us where we're from, where we're going. We tell him we're going to this winery, tells us what to get. I mean, it was it was such a good reminder of why you shop at small business because they offer an experience that the big ones can't. Yes. It was such a good Mike. This is why. Yes. And It makes it hard for that to exist when there's too much regulation.
0: Well, I think, you know, COVID broke the United States in a lot of ways. And I think one of the main reasons it broke was the government just walked in and took over everything. And they decided what you could do, what you can't do. But even more, and you've probably seen this because I think it was in California, this lady who has all these tables outside her restaurant, and she's crying as she points over literally in the parking lot next to her. And she is not allowed to serve food, even if it was outside for COVID, but then one of the big chains could, mm. and they were literally having a party mm-hmm. next I did see to that her meme. business. Yeah, I did see that. And yeah. it was like sh- heartbreaking. She's yeah. like, I'm losing my business. They're having a party over there. And right. the only reason they can do it, and I can't, is because the government said that they could open, but right. I can't open. Right. And right. the government walked in and said, you big players, you yeah. get to run the economy now. Yeah. And everybody else, you don't. Yeah. Ask why, because of COVID. Right. What does that have to do with health? So what is the difference between them? Nothing. Right. There's no difference whatsoever. Right. They're both outside, right, Masked, And it like, I think in America, it was just like, this is so vastly unfair.
1: Yeah, and I think something that happened, I don't know when it happened, but it seems like there's, there's so much trust put in the government and how yes. they do things. But the reality is, when they do things, it's more expensive and it's a worse experience for the yep. customer. Absolutely, right? that's what capitalism is for. It's yes. to do things cheaper and give a better experience. Because if you don't, the person next to you is going to. Yeah,
0: right. And and I I don't know where that shift happened, but it, it it's here today. It's here. Yeah, and it, it, it's so discouraging for I think so many people because then we have this narrative which is so funny because the people that want the regulations okay and want that put on right. are the same people that say big corporation is is bad. Right. And you're like, okay, but the regulation that you're putting on actually helps them. A lot of people don't right. even know the corporation. So if you want to go Dodd-Frank, right. well, who built Dodd-Frank? Right, It was the old bankers. Right. It was the banks, they sat in the room and drafted these laws. Right. So when you have regulations, whether it's through cryptocurrencies or AI, well, who's making it? The largest player. The politicians, they don't know anything about it. Right. So they call in and they have sit in the corporations who then make the regulations. Yeah. Do you not think that they make them in their favor? Right. Right, that's another,
1: that's a, that's a yes that's a deep one yeah yeah and then you know what I I, I want to touch on this because you mentioned it and, and we went into so much of the I would say the regulation part yes of, of why people are having such a hard time going from middle class to yes you know upper yes uh and the one part you touched on as well is the 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 perception of possibility yep right and you know you you made a really good point which is after a while and seeing it work this way you just kind of accept yep, defeat, accept right? This is something that's interesting. On social media, and I'm sure you see this as well, when you make content around how to do it, and if you ever say that anyone can, yeah. it, it's a shitstorm in the oh, comments. you get obliterated. You get obliterated. Yep. And you start hearing story after story of why people can't, right? Yep. This happened to me last week, and this is all gonna, I'm gonna tie it all together. Somebody came into my office, he makes, he makes 1.2 a year, so he makes $100,000 a month, right? And his question to me was, I have to spend my time to make this, how do I do it passively? And my goal is, I wanna make $100,000 a month in real estate, not sacrificing my time, and I want it done in five years, right? Yeah. This was his ask to me. Yes. How does that happen? Yeah. And I was like, well, it's not gonna happen in five, yeah. but why not stretch out your timeline, is, is yes. where I went with him. And he goes, well, because all of my friends are making 200, 300, 400 grand a month, And I feel like I'm blowing it and I'm not working hard, et cetera. And just, it it was like one of those eye-opening experiences for me to go, this guy is making a million two a year, feels like he's blowing it and has this eagerness to get here quick. Yes. At the same time, I have somebody in my comment section going, I make 70 grand a year and I'm broke, Yeah. right? I can never make a hundred. So, you know, I, I am a big believer in, what you think is possible becomes possible. 100%. And I think we can all trap ourselves
0: Yes. ourselves. Like yes, we are our absolutely. worst enemy.
1: And so the question just becomes like, how do you break that open yep. and no longer allow maybe some of our past experiences or really, I think the outlook that our parents provided to yes. us hinder us. And look, that's something that like everyone has to deal with and it's dealt with at different stages, right? Yep. Like for me, I never had the problem that I felt like I couldn't make let's say hundred thousand yeah. dollars right I never had that problem yeah. Where I started having a problem is based on how much my parents made and anything beyond that seemed hard to attain yeah. right and, and and so really what that means is I had an outlook of I had a perception to what let me let me see how I could articulate articulate this the right way. I had a view of what a lot of money was. Yes. And that was just my view. Yes. And to you, that might've been barely anything. And to the person next to me, that might've been outrageous. Yes. But that was my view and it was actually hindering me to get to where I wanted yes. to go. And so like reframing and learning how to reframe and
0: ultimately lie to yourself over and yeah. over until you believe it. Yeah. It's crazy how far that takes yeah. you. Well, it's one of the big reasons that I'm like, i'm so passionate on information right doing right. this and networking like we have these groups like me and you were sitting here today we're literally at our conference here we've got you we've got pace morby we've got all these people that are just hanging out with other people because when you get in the room with other people it does that it right. changes that perception right where then you hear and they're like look and you see oh okay it's not you're not some Harvard graduate that happened to be a genius, right? right? And it breaks down those mental um, barriers that were like, I have to be this way. And you can talk to people and you can see, and it opens up that perspective. For anyone who is not
1: here, uh, I'm gonna tell you what we just watched 40 minutes ago. Pace brings on uh, somebody he's working with, Kevin, I think was his name. And he goes, Kevin, two years ago, how much money did you make? Kevin goes, nothing, I was living at my parents' house. Yeah. And Pace basically flew out to him, had an intervention, he's telling the story, got him to move out of his parents' house and start this process of creative creative financing with Pace. And Pace looks at him and goes, how much are you gonna make today? And he goes, I'm on track to make 600K this year. In two years, years. right? And so if you're in the room and you watch that, you go, oh my gosh, he changed his scenario in two years, I can as well. It's powerful,
0: I totally agree with you. Yeah, and it's, I think, I was very lucky because I think I had very good home circumstances, loving parents. My dad was a hard worker, took himself out of extreme poverty. He he didn't even have running water, right? And we got into the business of selling insurance, which put us in the room with businesses that needed insurance. And we would, I would sit there and we would talk to CFOs, CEOs, right? And it was like, an experience and we would me and my dad would literally get in the car afterwards as we were driving back and we'd start to dissect their business okay they sell these at these products right we're helping them with this we know that the revenue side, like how profitable is it how is it is and so it was just like we got to open the doors and see all these businesses right. and it vastly opened my eyes and changed the way and i started looking at the way i made money and going i'm selling things here this is a treadmill and we got to stop because these are the people that actually have the revenue right and we're just asking to work for them and get a little cut of a premium that they spend, but it's theirs right right? and if i wasn't in that situation i probably would have never started to wonder that once again went through 2008 within real estate as well as doing these group medical benefits consulting for companies and i watched all the ones that failed the ones that succeeded and i gotta see why and that's in a position that i you know i'm just so grateful that i even had And that was prior to podcasts. That was prior to internet. Now I look at it and I'm like, you get this at your your beck and call. Just go open up a podcast and listen to an entrepreneur. And he'll tell you everything. And I'm like, we had to work so hard to get that information. And that's incredible today. People, we didn't have that. You didn't have that. Like if you had a question and needed to go ask somebody that built a billion dollar company, You couldn't do it, right? Correct. Today, yep. Go listen to any podcast that they're on. That's right. That's right. So
1: then the question becomes: If information is no longer held from you, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of it's culture, actually. I do too. You know, especially like in that in those young ages where like you know we're sponges, but at the same time we're so concerned about what you know our peers think of us. Yes it's so hard to like go outside of the, what the norm Normans. is.
0: And the norm is not what you and I are talking about. No, no, it, no, it is not. Mm. And, you know, even to, with this breakdown in communication, the one thing uh, that I really think has been good, but also outrageously disruptive, is the institutions that were the gatekeepers of information have just, they're done. Nobody believes CNN. Nobody believes Fox News. Right. They just don't, right? right? They're laughably not trusted. I mean, you have CNN who prime time gets less viewership than my podcast does. (laughs) That is mind blowing to me, right? Right. Um, You have Fox who at the height of their prime time was 3 million people, TikTokers will get Fifteen times yeah. that yeah. on one TikTok, yeah. and it's like those those institutions now can be called out. Mm. They can be you can look at alternative things of information, and I think it is causing people to say, "Hey, I'm going to rethink things here. I'm right. going to look for alternative solutions and information," and that has led a lot of people to be on more of a I think a self discovery. Yeah, I, I I think for like our generation mm-hmm.
1: and, and and beyond, that's the case. Yes. For the generations below us, they, no, they they don't even they've never done the no. the legacy media. A hundred, they've only done alternatives. Yes, right. So you know, yes, naturally we're going to get to a point where th- that everything changes. Yes. It's it's us who grew up yep. with legacy that yep. are now going. Wait a minute. Wait what's a minute. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you're no. right.
0: The younger ones don't even no, they don't even participate.
1: No, and you know what was shocking was the first time I experienced this was at the tail end of my skate career, right. right where I would have this whole, there were all these new kids, not coming into skateboarding, meaning they wanted to be pro skateboarders, but like the fans of skateboarding. Yeah, They didn't care about me. Yeah, They didn't care about Chris Cole. They didn't care about all the staples of skateboarding. They cared about like Chris Chan, who was like a YouTube skater. Yeah, And there were all these people that were doing it over there. I never even heard of their names. Yeah, All the kids knew them, yeah. didn't know us. And that was the first time I went, uh-oh something's changing. Like yep. this is shifting and shifting yep. fast.
0: Well, it, you know? it's funny, cause even in the world of capital, like what we do, you see Business Insider, you see the Wall Street Journal just last week going after syndicators, going after these alternative oh, yeah, stuff. That, yeah. And you're looking at it saying, oh, these people who are out um, on the internet talking and like almost trying to discredit them as in, okay, then where, like Business Insider, are you the place of truth, right? Cause that's laughable right nobody really believes that nothing i'm not pointing you out in general business insider please don't hate me i'm saying that all of those media outlets right? right they're not a holder exclusively of truth right and i think you you know the the war of cnn and joe rogan right which broke cnn right right it destroyed I know. them they lost that one they lost that one big Yeah. and it, you, when you when you look at that i feel like it's grasping for the control and power they once had
1: yeah well yes uh, I, and it's funny i'm going to talk about this tomorrow uh, on my speech um legacy media is not accepting defeat yet no they're right? not no they're not and so when you think of it through the lens of everything is built for attention how do i capture attention that's the name of the game right yeah. what it really comes down to is how do i shock them into yep. watching me yep. or shock them into reading my piece. Yes. So we're talking about hooks, 10%. Right? And so when you see how, at least legacy media is viewing how the battle is fought, it's, I need you to go over here. The incentive is say something so shocking that they actually come over here, Yeah. right? And so that gives, again, a poor experience to the consumer yeah. because it's not about truth. It's about yeah. attention, yeah. right? But what's fascinating. This is what I've been thinking about a lot lately is the algorithms are also built
0: like that a hundred percent, right?
1: So you do have this alternative plat, this alternative way of information, but now you start looking at the competition of the creator, yes. right? And, and how the creator by and large views success. It's all about views, views yeah, and followers, views. Yep. right? Attention. And so when you know or when you realize that a negative hook or a hook that promotes fear is gonna engage 10 times more than a message of hope, yeah, naturally, yeah. you're gonna compete over in the negative space yep. and promote that because you know more people are gonna watch. Yeah. And then you start seeing this battle happen in the alternative space. So you're kind of getting hit on both sides, both sides. but, when you look at media, whether it's alternative or legacy, and the purpose of them, by and large, being attention, their purpose is getting your attention. Yep. It makes it a little bit easier to go, okay, they're not my financial advisor. Uh-huh. They are not here to tell me where to invest. Yep. They're here for my attention. It yes. makes it a little bit easier to maybe discern through the information yes. and take it at face
0: value. 100%. They're basically performing. Right. and it, when you look at you can even track um words so you can go back to like all of a sudden 2015 and 16 and race right and equity and all these other things skyrocket like they weren't mentioned prior right and then all of a sudden at the same time they started being mentioned all together and it was they fed off each other because they found out oh hook Right, Right? And then all of a sudden that changes the way that people perceive what's actually happening in the world. Like you can take a, uh, uh, people, they took, took a poll and they showed how Americans and how people outside of America looked at America and they're like, America is so violent, so scary, everything else from 1980 crimes per 100,000 in 1980 were 5,000 per hundred thousand crime rate today it is less than, I think, a thousand. Like, those issues in America have gone nothing but straight down. And you look at inequality, you look at, okay, well, we have these um, uh, inequality gaps. But if you take out the hyper-wealthy, it's actually... The opposite, right? right? The majority has vastly benefited and gone up. And all of a sudden you start looking at the data, oh, actually how it is. One of the big things I'm writing on, which you'll you'll get a kick at, I, I, about eight months ago, it was millennials saying, everybody's saying that millennials are the worst off generation, first generation that are worst off than their parents, right? And I really started thinking about this and I was like, is that really true? Are millennials worse off than the baby boomers? And their grandparents and the answer was i didn't know but the main statistic that was driving this was home ownership and it's the farthest gap meaning price to income that is a true statistic right and then i had this thought the two inputs there are the home and the income so i work with a research company and i go i want you to compare homes today to baby boomers i want you to compare income well, long story short, we have over twice as much disposable income as baby boomers. Um, the baby boomers, as well as the greatest generation, paid 35% of their income on food. Right. We spend six. And then when you look at a home, the baby boomers, 35% of them didn't have heated running water, right. 35%. Right. Over 35% of them didn't have air conditioning and heating. And the average size house was 800 square feet, right. no garages, right. and the family size was twice as big. Right. Today, the average size home is 2,600 square feet, right. two garages right. with all the amenities. Right. And now I start to look at that and go, well, well, hold on here. We have twice the disposable incomes, the houses are three times the size, right. granite, right countertops, the works, we have all the amenities. If you strip all that away and start to look at a true comparison, are we really that much worse off? Because guess what? Home ownership went from 16% to almost 70%. So how in the world are we worse off?
1: What, I've been, this'll be why we're worse off. Because when I say this, we're gonna watch the comments and this is gonna be the reality, it's gonna highlight (laughs) this issue. We are way better off than our parents. That's without question. Without question. Without question. This is the greatest time to be alive. Period. Period. Right. Yep. And you're gonna watch the comments from my generation, millennials. Go. You're <laughs> tripping. Yep. No, we're not. No, it's we're gonna not. be over and over and over. no, we're not. What's yep. that gonna show? It's up here. It's up here. It's A- all totally up here. Up. Yeah. The op. We have so much more opportunity than we had yeah. than our parents had. Yeah. It's not even questionable. It's not even questionable. And you're gonna watch us become our own worst nightmare. Yep. And tell everyone else how that's not true.
0: Yeah, well, that is the problem. Oh yeah, I got a video that um, I made and and it was funny because Yen, who does my filming is like, you're gonna piss a lot of people off. And I was like, well, the truth usually does. And uh, (laughs) the question was, um, are you really lazier than your grandparents? And what I did is I took the labor hours average from the greatest generation and our parents to today. The greatest generation and before worked more from January to, I think, June or July than we work in an entire year. Yeah, of course. Our parents were the first ones to get weekends and paid time off. Yeah, that's right. That didn't even exist before. There were no holidays. Mm -hmm. So the income that we make, people complaining that you can't do as much with the income today, well, first of all, you work half the time. Right. So right. It, like it's perspective, people, it's it's they it's, had to work twice as hard to get a crappy house and right. they were only 16 of the per- percent of the population could do it and they were happy about it. Right.
1: Well, you look, you, you know, now it comes full circle. You talk about the government involvement and yep. in regulation. The reality is, is times have been pretty good since the Great Depression. Yes, they have. Right. So you have my, my dad actually said this to somebody not that long ago, he his example of hard work came from his dad. Yes. Who had to go through the Great Depression. Yep. And when you go through a moment where you cannot feed your family and you're in full blown survival mode, and any opportunity you had to get work that day provided for the family, you now feel thankful for the opportunity to do anything yes. to put food on the plate. Yes. Put food on, 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 on the plate. And then my dad saw that and went, okay, I, I have an opportunity to work and I'm going to work I my butt off. Do it. For me, I never saw that type of struggle in my dad. Yeah. Like everything was good everything with him, was good. right? Yep. And then from here on out, same thing. Yes. Everything's been good. So until we're put in a position that threatens our yes. <laughs> quality of life, yeah. we actually will never realize how good we actually have it. Yeah. There's the, I, there's the challenge. I completely agree. Um yeah. right now, right now the market should be so far down. Yeah. It, it should be a disaster zone disaster. right now. It's not.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not. not. It. It's so funny too, because you're sitting here going, all right, interest rates are, what are they at today? Oh, like, almost like, seven, seven. Seven, yeah. yeah. And um, you're like, people are like, why isn't housing dropping? Like, why aren't there all the good deals? And it's like, well, Where's the supply? Correct. (laughs) So there has to be houses for price to drop because we still have buyers. And you're you're looking at like, okay, all these things should be taken into including um, uh, uh, employment. And somebody somebody would say, oh, but employment went up. And we were looking at the data and it was like, we were talking about this on a podcast. And they're like, yeah, I mean, the job numbers are way worse than because if you include this stuff, employment went up from three... To or yeah, from three to three and a half percent, and I was like, "Hold on here." When's the last time that employment was below four percent, and outside 2017 and 16 or something right there, it was the 60s. Right.
2: So
0: the, saying employment is, is like so bad and everything, we're not we're not even close to a historical norm. Yeah. It's so tight, mm-hmm. and so you look at these things and you're kind of going, you know. It's it's perspective first of all, and a lot of times I think people are shocked that the economy doesn't work the way we think it should. Like there should be something happening, right? But it doesn't end up rolling out. And this is one of the problems they get into deals. I'm going to wait till there's a better deal. Yeah, you're like, really waiting for. I'm going exactly. So I guess for everybody listening to the podcast with all this turmoil, saying you don't know when the market's going to happen, you don't know exactly what's going to happen or whatnot. Mm-hmm. How do you find deals, and how do you buy buy deals? like are you waiting right now no we never wait so how do you go about it okay
1: it's, a, it's such a good question so uh i truly believe that if you wait you wait forever because there's always challenges to investing yeah we think that you know when the market's at the bottom that's the best time to invest and when it's at the at the height that's the worst feeling wise it's reverse. it's reverse, right so how we invest we go look how you talked about me articulating a message I try to simplify everything we do. At the core of it, we look at demand. Mm-hmm. Is what we're investing in going to have demand for the next decade? Yeah. Is the answer yes? Yes. Okay. That means we can fill it. Yeah. Now you look at some of the issues that we're currently facing, right? And this, you know, leans into the how do you invest right now? Some things get taken off the table and some things get put on. Right now, buying stabilized product with debt doesn't work. Yeah. Right. You have to go all cash if you're buying stabilized. Yep. If you're doing a value add opportunity or a construction or build uh, last year, you could use short term debt. You can use bridge debt. In my perspective, that is off the table right now. Yep. But what we do know is in many markets, it's undersupplied. So you have undersupplied markets, you have debt pulling back. means less, less banks giving you money. Do you think there's more people building right now or less? Less. What does that do to the demand issue? Makes it worse, right? So the question really becomes there's demand. How do we build right now? And how do we remove as many, uh, how would you say it? As many con, uh, as many liabilities as possible to make this deal fall apart. And so, you know, how we're doing it, we're staying away from short-term debt. We're going yep. into mini perm or long-term financing from the onset, right? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? It means you have to put way more down. Yes. Right, we're putting 40, 50, 60% equity down right now. Yeah. That is way more yeah. than what a lot of people are doing. Yeah. But what we don't want and what one of the risks would be is we build today, we use, you know, our 3-year 3-year debt, we finally get it stabilized, we try to move over into permanent or long-term debt and we don't qualify. Yeah. And we need liquidity. That's what we, that's what we
0: don't want.
1: But we know the demands there. Yes. So that's how we're looking at it. We're looking at it as an opportunity to negotiate better pricing because everybody's scared. We're, we're doing different financing options to remove the refi risk and be a builder in today's market yep. so that when the liquidity event potentially happens mm-hmm. or people get back to building, we've got brand new product
0: online yep. leasing up fast because the demand's there. I mean, this is exactly what happened after 2008. The machine right. that was the counterbalance of supply, kept things even and prices st- stable, right. was shut down due to a debt crisis, which meant financing. And that created a glut of properties that never came on board that in the United States the amount of housing units alone every year is staggering that right. needs to come on board right. just to keep up right. and we went for it was like 7 years until we even got close to that right and all of a sudden you're looking 7 years of that not we were so short right right and right. now it's happening again right so all of a sudden we need supply right and That's the right. The machines shut down. That's and right. Can't give it. So rent right. not going to go down. No, no.
1: If you didn't go through 2008 with real estate assets, you, you this will not make sense to you. You had great assets with equity that could not get loans. They could not done. get loans. Refinancing was a nightmare back yep. then. Right. They lost properties. They lost properties. They were they, cash flowing, making money. They were paying their bills. Exactly right. And then the second part to that is, and I'll, I'll speak specific to our area, Ventura County is as of 6 months ago the most undersupplied residential county in the entire nation wow. right we, that's where i lived, entire county we wow. are the worst we're short 33000 units right wow. and a lot of that is because we built more from 2001 to 2007 than we did from 2008 to current so twice the time frame yeah. way less units okay yeah so now you going how do you invest If I were to tell you there's thirty three thousand unit deficit, Mm -hmm. would you want to build there? Uh, Oh yeah, of course, yeah, (laughs) of course. I tell people this like when we started St. Archer. If part of my pitch was, we every single drop of beer we make we will sell, and we will never be able to make enough. We will always sell out of it. Would you go? I want to start that company with you. This yeah. is the reality in so many markets throughout America. Yeah, And so if the demand is there, everybody's so focused on what happens to cap rates in the next year or two, yeah. the next year or two do not matter if yep. you build your deal correctly from the onset.
0: It doesn't matter. You 100%. and I are gonna argue about cap rates next year. We don't care. We don't care. We're buying yep. either way. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. It's funny because two years ago, I was really concerned about high growth markets and everything because of supply issues. Meaning mm-hmm. that if we have a change up here, which we're like, we will, um, the supply had basically gotten on the storage side that it was predicated on the growth rate. Right. So they were building to the new growth that was coming in of people, everything else. And I'm like, if that growth rate stops, which it always does at some point, right? right? Um, then you have all this supply that doesn't even fit current demand. So I went and I looked for markets whose price per square foot in revenue was so low, Smart. the market couldn't put on new supply. Smart. And then I found markets that were big markets, like you're talking millions of people, and they had no new supply on it because the revenue hadn't hit the break-even part. Right. And I called that my rate runway. I know that rates will rise until we hit the counterbalance where new supply can come on. Correct. And it was like, all right, let's get out of these over, what I viewed was over, but they weren't oversupplied at the time. That's the problem people don't understand. When I was saying that my market where we live, which was uh, the Boise area, but particularly Meridian, was oversupplied every single storage unit was 100% full. They were raising prices right. by 15%. Right. And everybody's like, what are you smoking crack? Like, I can't even get a unit in the city, right? And I was like, yeah, but that's predicated on like 40,000 new people coming in every year. If you stop that, you have, you're have building everywhere. You have all right. this new supply, right? right? And so we looked at it and prices had gone up so high. Well, we moved out of all those markets everything a few years ago. And as of this year, I think that market dropped 30% in street rates. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. It's it's actually a, a similar model that we follow. We 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 typically invest where others don't. Yeah. We we usually go into markets that are more difficult to build. Yes. And it's it's for what yes. you just explained. The the typical cycle of a builder, which I totally get, is <laughs> there's an area where everyone is headed. Yep. Right. This should be a perfect example, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Everybody's heading to Idaho. There's no product for them. Yep. Builders go, oh. We're gonna build, yes. right? Builders build too much. This is yes. how it goes. Yeah. So you build too much. All of a sudden, you start having vacancy. And what do you do? What do you have to do with prices? You have to bring them down. Yeah. And then a correction happens. This is the normal cycle, yep. right? We go into markets where it is
0: so difficult to get product yep. online that the normal the cycle doubles, doesn't exist. Bingo. Yep. Bingo. It's funny because I always say the best thing about California is the worst thing. The government. That's correct. Because the barriers of entry are so high. But I go, if you get a property in California, I'm like, you're buying a monopoly. Right. Because it is so hard to get anything out that the normal supply demand metrics can't even function because it's not a normal functioning economy.
1: That's right. right. I, I had this conversation with my city manager on Friday. Yeah. He goes, you know, it is so interesting having you here and being on both sides. Mm -hmm. Because you understand it from the investor standpoint. Now you get to understand it from the city standpoint. And it is fascinating because you have a city that's going, our residents are complaining. It's too expensive. It's too expensive. And then they go, we need to build. It's so fascinating. I'm going, yes, you do. And the conundrum is for the residents, I'm saying, you need more supply. Yeah. If the issue is pricing, we need more supply. Yeah. And then as the investor, I'm going. We invest here because it's so difficult to put on supply that we're always below demand. Yeah. It's like such a. It makes
0: no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was listening to LA talk about this, and they were like, we talking to developers, and they're like, we want you to put out a product at whatever the amount was, like yeah, two hundred thousand a unit or whatever it was. This is the new tax. And yeah. the developers were like we can't build it for that right so how are we supposed to put it out there and they're like well are you gonna either not tax us or give us the land for free or like you know what is And the city couldn't wrap their rent they're like well no just don't charge as much and they're like okay i can't get the materials right or the labor to get it to the price point that you are telling me to put it at which you decide is affordable which you want affordable housing okay so what are you going to do to change the economics of the situation to where we can lower our price point like you ready for this? Yeah. This is this is the newest thing.
1: Huh. So they're uh it passed the Senate. Uh I believe it passed the Senate. They're gonna tax a 15% tax on short term rentals in California. And that percentage is gonna go towards their, I think they're calling it social housing program, mm-hmm. right? The social housing program is gonna be affordable housing that can only be owned by the government or nonprofit. And in it, they state. The reason why we're doing this is because when we tell developers to build, they can't build it at the cost that we need the pricing to land at. Yeah. So if we don't have to make money, we could build it for less, right? Yep. And I'm I'm looking at that going, that is so
0: interesting. This is so interesting yeah. that that is your outlook. That's your outcome. To, that's that's to what to you came it. up with, this this solution, this right, problem. Right. And you're like, oh, so you're building ghettos. Yeah, it's
1: good it, it, like, I, I talk. To if it par- doesn't make, profit. I talk to my partners about. I talked to my partner about this. I was like, Jerry, make this make sense. Yeah, right. And Jerry goes, Well, this is nothing new. Yeah, like, this part isn't new, right? Maybe it's like a different term. Yeah, but it's not new. Yeah, and so you know, I, I I think where I land on it is I I will always believe through all of the experience I've experienced that when the government does it, it's more expensive and yep. worse for me. The yeah. experience is worse for me. Yes. So I prefer when the government creates incentive for the private market to find the best and cheapest way to do it. They will find it. Yes, Of of course, course. that's what they do. That's That's why the market is the market. So I always lean towards that, uh, but that's gonna be the newest thing in California. We'll see how it goes.
0: Absolutely crazy. So last question here, Mm. dude, where do you think we're at our inflection point with interest rates, Mm. the feds policy, the outcome hasn't been as of uh, last week or two weeks ago, um, persistently high uh, employment, and um, although interest rates have come down, they're not anywhere near the target rate, everything. Where do you think in this landscape right now with what you're seeing in the city, with what you're seeing in your investment company, um, what are you looking at over the next six months to two years? Right.
1: Okay, I'm gonna tell you my thought. Yeah. And I, I want your opinion on it because we're guessing in some, yes. some way. Yes, So I never thought the Fed was, was attacking inflation to match their messaging. Yep. You know, w- when the Fed said our number one focus is bringing inflation down to the 2% target. And then I was wa- watching the action, they didn't fit to me. Yeah. Like, you know, where where we should be at right now interest rate wise way north of 10%. Yep. If if that was the yes. mission. Literally
0: right? what we remember last year we were sitting here at the conference and and that was one of the questions they asked all of us and they're like, where do you think interest rates will go? And I was like, well, they should go to 10. Yes, okay, okay, okay. So (laughs) you you have the Fed talking and not doing. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, with the jobs numbers, that was a shocker to me because I went, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. The Fed's job and mission is to bring demand down. Mm -hmm. Why are jobs going up? Yes. That to me would say, Inflation is going to be here yep. at a higher rate for longer yep. than we thought. Yes. So if that's the case, why are we expecting the Fed to pivot and start
0: dropping rates? Yep. I don't think I, it's going to happen. No. And you saw the market like tanked afterwards, and I was like, why did the market think that it was like the market? The market. The The market doesn't make sense to me yeah. anymore.
1: So, so this is what I think. If if I were to guess, uh, I think the Fed may have a pause, but I think rates are going to continue to go up. Yes and i think they're going to stay up for much longer than people are anticipating. Yep. I don't think the we're going to jam them up and then shoot them right back down is going to be the play. And so what that means for and look, and i will say this, i could be wrong, we're trying to invest so that we have a good outcome either way. Yes. But if rates stay up, i want to make sure that there's nothing challenging our financing. Yeah. If rates come down, refi. Yep. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: you 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 uh uh, date the interest rate but correct. You marry the price correct
1: and so i think it's gonna get much more painful than people think yep uh but i am not promoting doomsday i, yep. I, I i'm not expecting 2008 yes uh, i think there's going to be a liquidity uh squeeze in commercial real estate yep uh i think it's gonna be i think it's going be painful but it's going to be different M- my expectation is this in in 2008 a lot changed. Right, like banks no longer had to get all these assets off the books fast. Yeah, What did that do? That that limited the floor, but the recovery was much longer, yes. right? So fast forward to now, if you have these deals that were being built prior to the Fed jamming rates up, and they were expecting, let's say today, to get 50 million from a bank, the bank is now only lending them 40, right? They've mm-hmm. gotta figure out how to get that 10. Po- or pre-2008, that was probably gonna be a supply hitting the market at, at scale, yes. which means, Everybody's buying at discount. Now, though, you have good projects with equity in them. You just don't have the financing arm. Yeah. So I actually think there's going to be a lot of like pref equity. I think there's going to be a lot of mezz opportunity yeah. where you can potentially sit in a safer position in the capital stack, but make a higher return than common. Yep. That's kind of my expectation. Yeah. Um.
0: So we'll see. Yeah. The, the, the presidential election, I think, is the, the the wild card here. Yes, that's a big wild yeah. card. And you know, it's funny because uh, somebody asked me- Out of that, because I want to know yeah. your, your
1: perspective. Where in that do you think I'm right? Is anything that you think I'm is off?
0: So I, I, I have a few thoughts, especially when interest rates. I, I was asked, when are rates going to go back down below 5% or when we thought that they would- Do you originally which, think later 2024? Actually, my response was, why do you think they will? Right, like ever.
1: Well, that's an argument.
0: Yeah. Will we ever go like, that will low? Will we vision? ever go that low again? Because right. prior to two thousand and eight, correct, wasn't a thing. Correct, that like we refinanced our um, in two thousand. What was it? Nine or ten at five percent, and we locked in. It was dumb now because we got penalized if interest rates went lower. But we were literally like, "Well, how are they going to go lower?" Right. So there is this thought with, we may be in a new economic cycle Correct. that is actually, we're, we're done with this whole free money interest th- stuff that we're not going to see. Maybe we'll get down to 4.5, but we're not going to three anymore. Good point. And I, the problems that persist right now, I don't see how they're solved quickly. I don't either. And I think that a big problem we have is people forget because when there's a crash, the Fed can take care of problems really quickly by just flushing the system with money. right? They can't get it out like that, though. Correct, correct. And so correct. getting it out means if you want to get it out fast, let the economy do its thing. Let banks fail, reconstruct the debt or right. restructure the debt, right. and eliminate trillions of dollars in equity right. and debt and everything else, and then you're going to get inflation right. to stop. Right. But that is Violent, disruptive, and people get fired over that. So the Fed doesn't want to do that. Good point. So if you're not going to do that, then good luck getting trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions out of the economy. It's going to take time. Right. Right. So I believe that, you know, 2003, four, five is like almost this stagflation kind of era where people don't ever feel great about what's going on. It's a good point. It's not bad, but all the gains that were made is eradicated in pricing for products, services, everything else, right? So all of a sudden you're sitting here going, I may be making more money, but I'm actually netting less. So buyer behaviors will change. Um, Then they're gonna start to do weird things with like debt products where, Thirty-year mortgage is now forty years. Yeah, agree. totally. Right, agree. totally agree. And totally I think agree. that if we do see interest rates drop, which they, they will, they're not going to stay this high. No, the question just so, becomes, will they? How? Right. How low will they get? Right. right. And I think where the economy's at today, even if they drop, if they drop to five percent, we would have a very robust economy. Right. Obviously, look right. at where they are today, and right. the engine hasn't shut down. Right. So all of a sudden, you take homeowners from seven to five. Right. Well you're gonna have a flood of people entering the market right and uh, when you and the big thing is with short-term debt like you mentioned before i totally agree particularly with companies so these companies that rely on these debt um, products for uh, short-term cash flow issues if that remains really persistent um, we have the most businesses right now in default since 2010 right so when does this affect employment and when do those profit margins Correct. start to get where you're laying off people? Correct. That's that's my big question, I don't know, but I'm really thinking towards the end of the year, we should be seeing unemployment start to rise, totally because it's starting to flush out. Totally We're agree. starting to hear about developers that are that got into trouble that are now uh, restructuring debt. You're totally starting agree. to hear about all the people that are like, that. it's time to pay the piper. Right. And so that stuff starts to flush out, right. unemployment starts to rise, and then hopefully by 2025, we see more of a normalized so, interest rate. Very, very good outlook. Yeah, I think at best, that's what we can hope. At worst, we drop into a recession. Yeah, Totally. A, a bad one, yeah, right? Not like right. one that Because a lot of people think that 2008 is a recession, right? That's how they compare everything. But when you go back to like 2001, California had a really bad recession because it was the dot-com bust, right? Mm-hmm. Well. In other states like Idaho, not only did we not have a recession, we grew. Right, we right. didn't feel anything. Totally, two thousand eight. Yeah, there's a reason why they called it the Great Financial Crisis. Yes, yeah, it, it was not normal. No, and I think that the coming recessions that we probably will have, yeah, be fragmented again. It will be fragmented. It'll be sluggish. Right. It'll be like, are we in a recession? Correct. Are we Correct. not? It'll be the normal wall we'll Talk about the bottom, and exactly. then we'll go. Oh, the recovery's here. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where we're predicting. But at the end of the day, our investment strategy dude, right on par with you. We're going to win no matter what. Sure. So meaning that interest rates, wherever they are. Right, it's not predicated on that. Correct. Um, And if we can do that, we'll be fine. Correct, that's right. But okay, man, we've talked for, I don't even know how long, I could keep going forever. Uh, Thank you, dude, for coming on here. Thank you for your time, your insight. Um, It is so unique and I just love talking to you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. you too. So, thanks.